welcome to the Get Connected podcast. I'm your host, Mike Agarbo. I'm really excited about uh, this episode. We got a chance to visit Doug Copeland and talk about arts and its intersection with tech. You know, for those out there, Doug Copeland is a celebrated Vancouver author and visual artist. He popularized the term Generation X. He had written a book about that, uh, a novel back in uh, the 90s. Also, uh, one of my favorites back then, Microsurfs. He has done a number of different visual art installations uh, as well, if that wasn't enough, uh, including uh, the Digital Orca in uh, Cole Harbor in Vancouver, and even the Terry Fox Memorial at BC Place, again, in Vancouver. But his art lives around the world in museums and uh, all the different countries. We got to sit down in his amazing house which is just filled to the rafters with art and just got to hear his insights about where he came from and how technology influenced him back in the 90s and where it's going today with things like nfts non-fungible tokens it's time to get connected you're live with get connected mike agarbo here with my good friend john beeler we have a really, really cool show, and I'm really looking forward to it uh, today. We had a chance to interview artist and author Douglas Copeland. He is a uh, Vancouver-based Canadian author and visual artist and had an opportunity to go up to his house and talk to him about how art and technology intersect in his world. And... It, I found it really interesting, John, because I've followed him, you know, since the 90s. You know, I read Microsurfs, one of his uh, books, loved it. Uh, now he's into visual arts. You know, he did the Digital Orca down in Coal Harbor in Vancouver, the Terry Fox Memorial. He's done installations across Canada, the world. You worked with him on a, a project as well. Yep, yep. 3D printing. Yep. Took, took five years of your life. A joyous five years. It was a pretty special time, yeah. Anyway, it's interesting, John, because, uh, you know, I think of art and obviously art uh, technology plays a big part, but he, he's taken that to a whole other level. The thing that's interesting about Doug is he is always looking ahead and people always ask him about what the next big things are. Um, but he, he spends a lot of time, and this is how I met him, is I was excited about 3D printing. I tweeted at him and he tweeted back at me and he was really excited to have a chat about this at the time, very bleeding edge technology and how he could maybe utilize it in his work uh, on a daily, you know, workflow basis, but also just how it changed, how he even does things like uh, create his pitches for these other uh, public pieces of art. Whereas before he would have to send, you know, uh, paper drawings of stuff, but now we can actually send a visualized example of what he's got in, in his head which really helps sell the sell sell the story so you'll have to wait just a little bit we're going to talk about some of the tech news uh, but uh, after the next break we will uh, be sitting down with him and just going through all of that and some of his history as well and it is fascinating stuff uh, looking at the tech news this week uh, john <laughs> some interesting things uh apple they've got a, a an april event coming and it, it it's going to be interesting to see what they announce. There's not going to be any new phones, I don't think, from the rumor mill anyway. But it looks like it might be a new MacBook, new iPad Pro, and even a new Apple TV as well. Maybe. 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 You never fully know. 
No. And I mean, usually the rumor sites are about maybe 60% accurate with some of the stuff. They, they tend to overcompensate for what they think is going to come. So, I mean, there's also the, the long rumored and expected air tags yes. as well. So those are kind of like the little tile trackers, but Apple's version of it. Yeah. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, it's that. interesting too, because one of the rumors stated that some of the, the reason why some of this, these products have been delayed has been chip again, which we've talked about before. Yeah. There's not enough computer chips out there right now. The supply is just like at absolute zero. Yeah. So it's it's hard for any of these manufacturers, and it looks like it's affected Apple as well to get their products out in a timely fashion. Well, and that's just the interesting thing is, you know, Apple is kind of consistent with, you know, their release cycles, and this is definitely throwing a curveball and all that. Moving over to uh, smart TVs, Roku has uh, revealed a cheaper 4K streaming stick. Roku is one of the most popular smart TV platforms in the world. A lot of people always think like Google Chromecast or Apple TV, for example, you know, the Apple TV boxes. But no, Roku is just blowing them all away. And the simple reason is that they've got the cheapest, easiest smart TV sticks and boxes out in the market. And a lot of TV manufacturers like TCL and Hisense are building their their smart TV platform right into the TV itself. We've talked about Roku a lot, but all the TVs we have in our studio are uh, Roku enabled. Yeah. And it just makes life so much easier when we need to like throw something on the screen quickly from, you know, something that someone's edited or we need to put a graphic up on screen. It just has all the things built in. Taking that to the home though, that's why they're so popular is because they're dead simple to set up and install. You just plug a little thing into your TV. You're done. Like it's, it's so much easier than anything else on the market. What I'd like to though, is the interface, you know, cause a lot of people have dumb TVs or maybe their smart TV has gotten outdated and yep. that, that happens now, right? Yeah. The, well, the, the, the smart, the older smart TVs, for example, they just don't have enough either horsepower to run the newer apps that are streaming like 4k footage. What actually really happens a lot with 4k or with smart TVs is that they have a really underperforming Wi-Fi adapter built yes. into them. Yeah. So you need to have something external to actually like connect to your, you know, your Wi-Fi six enabled router to get that proper streaming with no buffering for Netflix or whatever. So I guess that's why Roku has been very popular. And again, most of the, you know, if I were to buy a new TV, like having Roku built into it is like a plus for me. Yeah. yeah. And so the interface is deadly simple. It's, it's so easy to get around to, you know, like Netflix and Plex and, Disney Plus and, and what have you, but uh, they also have AirPlay built in to them now as well. So these uh, AirPlay is Apple standard for like having you know your iPhone or iPad being able to send its screen or videos to your TV. Yeah, it, like it's deadly simple. So that was only available in their newer models, the 4K versions. But now with the latest update, that's going to be backwards compatible to all of the sticks. It's interesting too because a lot of people don't have a 4K TV. No. Because they, they have a perfectly good high-definition TV. Yeah. You know, we're not getting a lot of 4K content from our cable providers. No. Uh, and a lot of people aren't paying for the 4K upgrades for things like uh, Netflix. So um, having the ability to have this work on anything is great. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Um, and they're also updating uh, some of their uh, products here as well uh, to take advantage of the best possible wi-fi network in your home so uh not to get too geeky but a lot of uh your wi-fi routers in homes now they can do two different bands the 2.4 gigahertz 
uh, which is kind of the older frequency that, you know, game console controllers and microwaves kind of on that frequency. And for people that still have cordless phones. Cordless phones, yeah. So it, it's kind of polluted. You know what I mean? Like It's a very densely populated network. So, you know, a few years back, uh, they went to 5 gigahertz, which is just way better. And so now, uh, you know, these, these new Roku sticks will actually be able to tell which is the best one in your house as far as, you know, signal strength and, and quality, which I think is great, and automatically switch to that. That's cool. I think so. Anyway, they've got a, a new stick coming out. Uh, you know, God, I think they start at 40 bucks. Like, how can you go wrong? I, I, I carry one traveling with me now, a little stick. Yeah, well, yeah, they're perfect. Well, when we can travel again, for just plugging into your hotel TV. Yeah. You, you know, my problem is remembering to unplug it. Yeah, and taking it home with you. Yeah, that seems to be a challenge uh, I, I have. Talking about the tech news here on uh, Get Connected uh, this week. Also in the news, do you remember the Universal Remotes? What was the big one? The Logitech Harmony. Yes. So Harmony was its own company for a while, and then Logitech came in and bought them. It, it was a neat idea. I mean, this idea, one, one remote to rule them all. Yeah. I don't know if they actually used that at any point in time, but um, the idea is that you would just add uh, through software or through the remote itself. Some of these remotes actually had LCD screens on it, so you can actually pick and choose your equipment. And so now, apparently, they're going the way of the Dodo, unfortunately. I, I actually set one up in my uh, father-in-law's house because he had a bunch of different things going on. And it was kind of a blessing and a curse at the same time because I found it kind of worked like 90% of the time. That was my experience too. I never owned one, but I went to friends' houses and they're like, oh, just just use the Harmony remote because they, you know, they like the fact that you didn't have to have 16 remotes on your coffee table. Yeah. But you pick up the one remote and it's like, I don't know what I have to do to make the TV come on. <laughs> Yeah, so that that is the challenge uh, that I found. Like there was ten percent of the times, it just wouldn't make all the right things happen, and then you you know you'd have to go into like this help mode, yeah, to uh, to go in and, and try to 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 make it all go. And so now it's gone. <laughs> but it, I think the reason is because most of the new technology actually will work with a remote. Like so, if you've got a new Blu-ray player and you know the latest game consoles and the latest TVs. Your TV remote, because they've got this new standard, I think it's CEC. Um, is that? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, that will actually control all of those devices. It just seems like when you every, plug it into HDMI. Right. It just seems like everything that you get nowadays, anyways, comes with a universal remote already. Yeah. And like even the remote I got with my Telus TV works with everything. Yeah. Um, and same with Shaw, uh, at least out in the West here. Um, but even the TV itself. I got a fairly new Samsung TV about a year ago. Yeah. And it it can control everything. Yeah. So CEC stands for Consumer Electronic uh, consumer electronic Control. And uh, this is an HDMI feature that most new devices have. And so it's kind of negated the need for these, yeah. these controls. Yeah. Well, like when you power on your Xbox controller, it turns on your Xbox and your TV and switches to, the, to that source. Yeah. Like it's kind of magical. It is magical. Welcome back to the program. Mike and John here. We've got a, a great guest uh, in studio with us uh, today. His name is Doug Copeland. Uh, many of you probably have heard of him or seen or read some of his work. He is Vancouver-based uh, author and visual artist. Uh, a lot of his work has revolved around technology. Uh, he's written many uh, different uh, books. He has created 
all kinds of different uh, art, visual art. We're going to be talking to him about that today and how it kind of all intersects technology and uh, also getting into the world of NFTs as well and where he sees that going. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I think I first came across you back when I read Microsurf. Is it Microsurfs? Microsurfs. That yeah. was 1995. Way back. And you worked at Wired uh, or wrote for Wired Magazine back in 93, <clears throat> you were saying? I was, no, I was working at Wired back in 93 and 94, and it was a very exciting time to be there. Yeah. Have you found that your work has always kind of revolved around technology? Boy, if I look back at what I've done, it's more often than not, it's about technology. In the 90s, it was all about Apple versus Microsoft and the birth of the internet and as you know with the new millennium it revolved around you know how video games affect us i did a book about optical fiber technology and another book about marshall McLuhan, who's sort of seen as the patron saint of the 21st century um and it wasn't some sort of you know conscious agenda i just looked back over time and said oh this seems to be something i work with a lot you started off writing and I guess, transitioned into visual art? Or was that always part of you? Well, I went to art school and I graduated in 84. Uh, Starting in the 90s when I really began writing, I began pioneering, I guess, what you would call the look of the internet. Because in the 90s, there was no internet. No one knew what it was going to look like or what it could look like. So I, I was on these book tours that went on forever and ever. And I would do my tour diaries. And they were visual blogs. And I think they're archived somewhere online. My God, back then, we'd do these JPEGs that are like you know, the size of a postage stamp and like, oh, you're going to crash the system and we don't have enough memory for that. And now like your thumbnail sketch on your iPhone has more memory than my entire system circa 1997. Can you remember your first computer? I've been all Mac all the time. My first computer was a Mac and that was in Toronto in 1988 at a magazine there. It was actually North America's first all Mac office. And all these people would come in and look around and go, Oh, this could never work. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. They were wrong. They were totally wrong. <laughs> um, what, what were some of the first um, art pieces that you did? Well, in terms of physical art, around 2000, I was getting pretty fed up with the ephemerality of things that go on the internet and vanish or crash or just become obsolete. Began working with wood and metal and photography, you name it. That's 20 years ago now, and it feels like 10 minutes ago. You know, I, I, I divide my life into four different things. Uh, there's studio art, which can be anything I want it to be. Uh, there's, say, public art, which is like nonfiction. It's grounded in some sort of reality, and there's a task at hand. There's fiction, which can, ever, uh, can be whatever I want it to be. And then there's nonfiction, which is somehow tethered in reality, uh, like a book on optical fiber technology or what have you. You just woke up one day and wanted to write about that? Like what inspires you? Like your work is all over the place. Well, I used to, on book tours, which you don't have to do anymore because of the internet, thank God, uh, I would make these daily collages and then I'd FedEx them back to the studio in Vancouver. They'd have to be cut up and scanned and put back together again. And I just thought if I didn't do something physical very quickly, I was probably going to go crazy. Yeah. And I'm glad I did decide not to go crazy. Well, some of your work includes the Terry Fox uh, replacement <laughs> memorial at BC, BC Place, <laughs> if I can say that. Uh, also the Digital Orca uh, down in, in Coal Harbor, uh, which looks very techy uh, as well. And John, uh, you met uh, Doug through uh, one of your projects. I think it was called the National Portrait. 
where you 3D scanned hundreds, if not thousands, of Canadians' heads. It was thousands of people, yeah. Oh, John and I, that was one of the most fun projects I think I've ever done. Oh, okay. God. We had, a, at one point, how many printers going at once? We had uh, about 17 printers going in my garage. <laughs> God. Well, we, we literally scanned, like, how many? 2,000 people at Simon's stores all across Canada and then had to, everyone who got scanned got a little printout of themselves and then we printed these things up large, we stretched them, we squished them, um, painted them and it was ultimately, we showed it in Ottawa, at the Ottawa Art Gallery, a beautiful, beautiful show. I think that was one of those, you know, perfect storms where technology and art just came together beautifully. It's interesting because I remember when we were doing sort of the, that tour, you would often tell people that, you know, we're using uh, basically a, a dedicated piece of hardware attached to an iPad to do the scanning. And you were predicting in the very near future that you'd be able to do it all on your phone. And now Apple has that LiDAR technology built into your iPhone. So you can almost do the same thing that we were doing, but just with a phone now. Yeah, you scan my head with a phone. My head doesn't look that good in 3D. <laughs> oh. it, it, it is strange when you get your first 3D portrait and you turn it around and you see the back of your head yeah. and it's like this an unholy mirror of some sort <laughs> that shows you the other side. It's like the dark side of the moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. So when you go into these, these visual art projects, um, do you ever follow up on them? Like, do you think you'll get into another 3D printing installation? Like, do you just always want to try something new? Oh, one thing always builds on the other. Yeah. Uh, I mean, another reason I like to do a lot of projects and a lot of media mediums media gosh i should know that uh is because you meet all these new people like john and then i meet you and who knows where this is all gonna go and i learn new skills and i mean i'm 59 people i know are starting to retire and i'm like are you crazy like your brain's gonna turn to mush and you should be out there doing stuff mike and i talked about that all the time that we're probably never going to retire because we're always going to be doing something for us, it's mostly going to be tech-related, or at least talking about tech. But I can't imagine just like stopping my brain activity and just getting a boat or an RV or something. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of getting an RV. Okay. <laughs> I still want to do work and keep the the mind active, definitely. So a lot of your installations they're they're grand in size, really, like the public ones. Do you plan on continuing that, or do you do more intimate things for yourself? Well, we're here in my living room, and you can see some of the things that I do. Um, How would you explain your living room right now? Like, when <laughs> oh, I walked in here, I'm like, this is like a retro artistic fever dream. Um, I just decided to live inside my own head, Yeah, basically. So this is what the inside of your head looks like. Yep. Yeah. So I, I don't even know how to just, John, how can you describe it? I can't. It, it's <laughs> I, I just love coming here because every time it's different, it evolves, it changes, new yeah. things get added, things get removed oh um, it's it's wonderful and colorful there's like a giant army man over in the, the corner there's it's from 2000, 20, 2000? 21 years ago oh, now um well to answer your question mike um i have an art dealer in uh, toronto okay and he also deals with europe and i do private work which sells to collectors and museums and so the public work because they have of necessity scale and volume and money they tend to be really large, and I like. Frankly, it's very satisfying making something big. Yeah, it's just it didn't exist before. It's just so deeply satisfying. So you like the physical aspect? Do you do any digital type of art? 
When I began doing public work, everyone expected a pencil drawing or a sketch. And now everyone wants, at the very least, a sketch up. They want renders. Uh, they want CAD drawings. They want everything. And if you don't have that, they think you're like maybe a pretend artist or something. <laughs> I, I am really astonished by how technological art has gotten. Yeah. A few times I've helped you with 3D printing mock-ups of a giant piece. And that really helps sort of sell the idea and, and what you have in your head because people can relate to that much better than a, a, a drawing of it, for example. Especially when you have it in your hands and you can look at it from all different angles and that type of thing too. A corollary of this is you make a work in a CAD format, an OBJ file or SketchUp, and you look at it so often that when the actual thing is actually there, your brain doesn't quite register it as real anymore. And the thing about doing something in SketchUp or ZBrush or a rendering program like that, what you see is exactly what you get, which is reassuring, but it's also a bit jarring at the same time. There's, there are no glitches or there are no errors. or I guess you would, it maps onto photography, I think. I mean, 3D printing is just a 3D equivalent of photography. We've talked about uh, some of these technologies, the 3D printing. You're talking about CAD drawings. Do you know how to do all of that, or do you have people to help you with that? Like, there's a lot to know. I find you know I, mean? I find it's much better to find incredibly skilled people like John <laughs> and then put yourself at their mercy yeah. than it is to try and learn how to be, say, you know, an entire 3D program from scratch. Yeah. That, that was one of my favorite parts of the project we worked on. Is it was more of a collaboration because you were drawing on my experience and we would sort of experience new things together and try new things all the time. And that was really exciting and fun to do. I mean, also the project that you and I did, John, during, I think, the five or six year span of that project, the technology itself was changing so rapidly so by the end, the printers that we were using were like infinitely more powerful and, and higher quality than the ones we began with. Yeah. I mean, and then now you're talking about LiDAR, which I've got this brand new iPad, which has it. And for those of you who don't know what it is, it's just, it's a, you can map out a room, you can copy someone's, any, you can just scan the world now and, and turn it into a file, which is sort of fun and scary at the same time. Definitely. What would 1995 Doug think of all the technology available now? Like how much easier it might have been to do some of the things? I was thinking about that yesterday. Right now, feels very futuristic in a wonderful way but it's also we get very used very easily to whatever technologies we have i remember using shazam which is a music identification app on uh iphones it was like oh my god how did it? and now it's like just shazam it or, <laughs> or whatever you know we're a very ungrateful species to be honest i i thought about that a few times too it was like oh this is really cool but we're going to be laughing at the technology we're using today in a year or even a couple of years, right? And and we saw that with 3D printing and 3D scanning as well. It's almost like a mathematical constant, but regardless of how good the technology is, in the end, I always have to call John two and a half times <laughs> to get me some sort of birthing trauma. <laughs> um, I want to go into NFTs now, which is really big in the news. Uh, it's a big thing for creators. We've had some great chats you know especially with musicians uh and this seems to be something i don't think it's going to go away it's a way to digitally authenticate 
creator's work. How do you feel about it? Is is something that you're going to get into as well? I think it was about four weeks ago that there was this artist named Beeple, of all names, who sold a JPEG at Christie's for $60, $70 million, what have you. I think it was actually... It was the guy who invented NFTs is the one who bought it from himself, perhaps. I mean, it, I do remember that the morning after that happened, that all these emails from all these people from every aspect of my life who I guess wanted to know, like, am I suddenly like a dactillionaire now? Or <laughs> uh, and I think all these people had never thought of art before were suddenly like, should I know about this? Like, how can I make money quickly? Like, what's going on here? And I think people saw it, see it as a gold rush. And, and there is a lot of just people maybe trying to cash in on it. I mean, go back to 1935, 1940, and you know, that comic book you got there is going to sell at Christie's for you know, $2.5 million, which I think what happened last week with Superman number one. Yeah. Like, oh, you got to be kidding. What, the comic book? So, I mean, who's to say a JPEG or a GIF or a GIF, however you pronounce it, is or isn't going to be valuable in the future? One of the things that we've talked about with artists that to me seems really compelling is the fact that you mentioned that you have work that you create for private collectors. If that private collector then sells that piece that you made for them, you don't get a piece of that pie. But with NFTs, you would because that would be built into the contract on the blockchain and it would be automatic that you would get a royalty for that transaction. To me, that seems like a really interesting sort of long tail play for artists to get compensated for the work in perpetuity. You know, in Europe, there's, it's not a law. It's a custom called draw to suite, uh, right of suite, which means if, if someone buys something of yours and sells it to someone else, you give a percentage of that back to the original artist. It's not that much. Um, but if you're a collector and you don't do it, where it gets around that you don't do it, and then people won't sell you anything anymore. So it's sort of a gentle, a gentleman's kind of thing. Right. Is that for artists that are alive still, or does it go to the estate as well? Uh, for artists that are living. Yeah. And then what, what, what's the percentage for a it, it seems to vary. It seems like you have the ability when you're creating the NFT to set what that should be. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So okay. I think it's fairly common to be like five or 10%. Okay. So like Beeple in his contract, the next time that guy sells his $69 million JPEG, he gets 10% of whatever that sell price is and it's automatic and it's tied to his wallet. So he doesn't have to do anything about it. The other interesting thing is also the provenance of that piece you can see who's all owned it previously. And so you'll know that, oh, well, Doug made it. He sold it to John. Then Mike bought it. And you can see all those transactions because they're transparent on the blockchain, which I think is interesting, but also might sort of pull back the curtain a little bit to how the art world works. Oh, the art world is the most unregulated business on the planet. Like It's all smoke and mirrors and magic and the prestige. It's just... Looking at NFTs, I, I have looked at the things that people are selling online, and I, I think that a lot of it may be cynical, but if you are working with and around and about technology uh, as a visual artist, it makes a sort of sense to you know put your foot a bit into the sandbox of NFTs. I wouldn't do anything that I wouldn't want to have going 24-7 in my house. And if you put something out there, that's designed to be beautiful or thoughtful or whatever, then that that's fine. I mean, if you take something you did five years ago and like slap it on a site, that that's 
shame on you a bit there. Is that kind of sort of going to the gold rush and, and trying to monetize something that maybe shouldn't be or, or putting a new spotlight on something that maybe doesn't deserve it? Well, one thing I will say that art is like the world's worst way to make an income because it's like it's so you know irregular and random. But in that first week after the Beeple sale, I was talking to some painter friends and everyone thinks I'm a millionaire now. Like, what's going on? So it's probably the first time in history everyone's looked at artists and said, dang, I should have gotten in on that. Well, you know, I was looking at that the Beeple image in, in a, a large format and he does really cool stuff. He does, yeah. He's been doing one piece of art a day for like over 10 years. Yeah, no, no I, like, I like his look. I like his the way he thinks about the present vis-a-vis the future. I mean, so good for him. You yeah. Know, good for him. But we're seeing a lot, you know, to, uh, to John, um, a lot of people want to just cash in on this. Like, what can I make digitally right now that I can mint as an NFT and hopefully get in on this gold rush? Like, there's going to... And again, art is so subjective and, you know, who's to say what's junk and what's not and what's worth it? Well, I think maybe it's like marijuana in Canada. We're at the beginning, everyone is going to make a killing selling weed. And I think now we're down to a few a few players and yeah. it's probably that's what it's going to amount to. But then again, there's the Superman number one comic factor. You never know. Is it something that you are exploring? Or do you want to get into NFTs? Is that a thing in your what future i've done some animations just for the sake of doing animations and they're they're, they will be out there shortly but you know at this time next year i might be 35 dollars richer 35 (laughs) (laughs) or 35 million no i don't think so i I wish but no Where, where do you see the future of art going in general like you've been involved for many years now like over the past 20 years you've seen a lot of change in innovation do you see a a trend or is it just is it random well i think in both visual art and in publishing they're often the last people at the party the joke is that the first book ever printed was the gutenberg bible and then the second book was like is publishing doomed (laughs) (laughs) and the thing in the art world as as we talked about earlier i mean it's completely unregulated and you've got museums you've got collectors you've got critics and theoreticians in academia you've got artists and sometimes you have these alliances that work sometimes they go sideways i think in the art world museums have probably taken the biggest hit over the last two years um, because money doesn't make money anymore so if you have an endowment you have to start eating the capital to keep the security guards and air conditioning going then you had museums shutting down because of covid and then you have Black Lives Matter, which it, you know, exposed necessarily all the huge inconsistencies in the way museums collect. And then at the very, very end of this, you have this punchline called people. You're like, Wah! I mean, everyone in the art world, their head's on fire, right? Your hair is on fire and they have no idea what's happening. And if they say they do know what's happening, they're just lying through their teeth. It's kind of exciting. And that's, I'd say it's halfway between chaos and anarchy at the moment. And that is a wonderful place for new ideas to, you know, take root and explode. So I think it's great. It's almost like a great reset that was brought on by this technology. Is it like the giant comet hitting the earth and wiping out the dinosaurs? Like, 
revolutionary or evolutionary no. NFTs? Like, or maybe it's like that cheesy meteor from that movie Greenland or whatever. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> um, I mean, a, a reset had to happen, and we just didn't realize how big a reset it was going to be. Uh, one thing that has sort of survived throughout all this is collectability. So that if you were collectible uh, before all of this, you're, you still are collectible. You know, I, I was talking to some people last week, and it was saying, like, God, remember blogs? And like Blogs are going to be the future of communication, and now there's something you look back at fondly. And the strangeness of all this is that we're going to look back on this fondly from whatever deranged perspective we end up arriving at. <laughs> So um, there's always going to be something strange happening, and I'd rather be around that strangeness than be around something predictable. Is that inspiring for you then? Oh, absolutely, yeah. We've been talking with Doug Copeland, uh, a visual artist and author based here in Vancouver. I think uh, many Canadians uh, know who he is. Anything on the horizon that you can talk about? In October, there's a collection of short stories. There's 60 of them, and they're each a 1,000 words long. And the book's called Binge. And I tried to recreate in reading that same sense of like binginess you get from binging on something on Netflix or what have you. What, what, what is it that makes something just obsessively desirable so that you want to keep on doing it to the point where you're up at 4.30 in the morning? And you put 60 of them in there. There's, yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> one for every minute of the hour. Yeah. And... I mean, my brain's been changing along with everyone else's brain over the last you know, 20, 30 years. I used to have this expression, I, I miss my pre-internet brain, but now I, don't, I no longer remember my pre-internet brain. There was a power failure here during a storm a few weeks back, and I forgot to charge my laptop. And it was like, oh my God, this is like, this is the worst thing ever. And I tried to read a book, and it was just like, no, <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> don't unplug Doug Copeland. The, Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I think we'll leave it at, uh, at that. Thanks for joining us today on the program. Oh, it's been fun being here. Thanks. You are back with Get Connected. Mike and John here. It's been a fantastic show. Been a pleasure having Doug uh, on the program as well. If you want to hear the full version of that uh, without all the breaks, uh, go to our website and subscribe to our podcast. Uh, we've got the full podcast up there, even some extra bits uh, you know, that we spoke uh, to Doug uh, about. So I encourage you to uh, check that out and uh, love to have him on the show again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's always playing with something new and exciting. Don't forget to hit our website, getconnectedmedia.com. Like I said, the, the podcast's up there. We've always got contests going and lots of uh, great how-to videos uh, and the latest product reviews uh, as well. I want to thank John uh, and Christina for helping put the show together. We will see you again next time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Get Connected podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or CuriousCast.ca. If you want to get in touch with us, you got to check out our website, GetConnectedMedia.com. We've always got great contests going there. You can drop us a line anytime. We'll see you again next time.